Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I'm delighted to have Jules Howard in London to talk to about his wonderful book called Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans, which is a much more personal book than the title would have you think, or even than all of the very elaborate footnotes would have you think. This is a man who's been toying with the idea of how much he loves dogs and how, as a serious writer, he can write about that. And Jules, I think you've done that in Wonder Dog. You've satisfied your own personal secret desire, as you call it, to look at dogs or look at the way that everyone else has looked at dogs and then bring your special desire to talk about love for them into the book and yet still be a science writer. Is that, is, is that well put? Thank you, Tracy. That is very, very nicely put. And um, yeah, it has. It's been a kind of uh, long struggle, I suppose, in my writing anyway, to to try and work out that dividing line between you know good, strong science, lots of evidence, but also trying to be realistic about this amazing relationship that we have with with dogs and you know by extension other companion animals. It's a it's a funny sort of conundrum. On the one hand, everyone who's ever loved a dog says, "Well, of course we love dogs," and yes, of course they love us back, no doubt about it. And yet there's all this science that's been plodding along for centuries saying, not so sure, let's double check, let's do a study, let's do a, <laughs> you know, put the dog in a box, put the dog in an MRI, put the dog in a, you know, in an electrocution chamber, whatever it is, to see does he really like you? It's this funny kind of scientific, I'm not so sure. And yet anyone who's had a dog is so sure. And now you've taken made a book that shows all of this thinking over all of these centuries really and said you know we really loved each other all along it's so funny because it's so it's it's so <laughs> dense with facts and information and and you know you're collating of them and all the time you're saying god i really want to use the l word now the thing that's <laughs> funny is that and this must not be true in england there was a very successful television show here in america for years a number of years called the l word which meant lesbian so throughout oh. the book, you call it the L word. And this is one of those great cultural differences between uh, England or Great Britain and the United States is the L word in America 
is pretty much a reference to this very successful cable TV show that was about lesbians, really. It was like wow. a lesbian, like, nighttime soap opera. So, and I understand what you were saying, and I think that might also be quite British, that to use the love word, which you call the L word, um, and refer to other scientists, you know, tiptoeing around the word love. It's just interesting that there is that reticence to be kind of soft and squishy, either in science or maybe even in England. Do you think that there's more of a reticence to express emotion? Yeah, I mean, I saw that myself through through studying zoology. And I can remember um, 20 years ago wanting to do a dissertation on um, dogs and uh, their emotional responses and love. And I remember, I genuinely remember almost being laughed out of the, uh, the tutorial yes. um, for using a word like that. And the, the word still used by a lot of dog scientists today is attachment. And that's a word that can be applied across the kind of mammal spectrum. Um, and that was the kind of the, the, the word. And the philosophical argument, of course, was, you know, how, how do you know that my the love I feel is the same as the love you feel for things, Tracy. And so it's this amorphousness of the word, I think, that scared a lot of scientists. As you know, like they want detail, they want rigour, they want to be sure that everything that they've got written down matches up with the evidence. So that word um, love uh, it just didn't really match up for them. And I think, to be honest, if I'm totally honest, I think that's a, that's a, um, a good approach if you're studying um, wild animals, for instance, um, if you're doing ethology on, um, let's say, you know, apes or, you know, other primates, you know, really want to be sure that perhaps words like uh, jealousy and territoriality, that they mean what we think they mean. And love kind of goes in that bracket, you know, so attachment was the go to word. But then I think in the end, um, the process of researching and writing this book, which is obviously like all books, you know, taken many, many years. Sure. I um, I was kind of like frustrated, I suppose, by the it's it's not just there's one study. Um, it's that you've got such a sort of range now, such a breadth of studies, you know, all basically reporting back on, on the, the fact that dogs can. And it's important to say they don't always, but dogs certainly have the, the mental hardware to feel the things that we think they feel, you know, the obvious things. So it, I agree totally. You do get to a point where you go, well, of course they, they love. It's kind of obvious, you know, and it's us screaming at us that they do love us. So I agree. But, but it's nice to get to a point scientifically where we can hopefully say that with with a degree of confidence. Well, I think the love, the lovely last chapter of Wonder Dog, to see love coming, you talk about some of these famous researchers, well, in particular, Clive Wynn, who in the, the dog cognition, or maybe even animal cognition, because he used to be a pigeon guy, right, is mm. pretty famous. And you're so funny, you call him the Debbie Downer of the canine cognition field. And you say that even, I think you said you were once painted with that brush, like, you know, a, like a naysayer. But then he fell in love with Zephos. That was the wonder dog. So he he had this one dog where he said, well, of course he loves me after all these years of being originally, I guess, a pigeon researcher. And his books are really interesting. He's written some very serious, well, very well-regarded books about dogs and their cognition, what they feel, what they see, what they hear, what they smell. But you, too, have a dog called Oz, and you can sort of proclaim from the rooftops, I love Oz, Oz loves me, we are cool. And that's great. <laughs> you know, in the last chapter, you this sort of you shed some of this, uh, we have to all be serious, and goodness forbid we use the L word because we're all grownups in this room, <laughs> you know. It's like, wow, it sort of makes me think of 
British public schools and sending off, you know, young <laughs> men at, at five, little boys, little children, and they have to take cold showers and eat gruel and, and everyone says, buck up and don't cry and there's no hugging. And, and it, it, that's sort of a British thing, is it not? Or do you think it's stopped? A li- do you think it's warmed up a bit? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you guys have a, a kind of better perspective on that when you look at, you know, our culture coming, you know, over the pond kind of your way. I know it doesn't apply to me, although I am sort of classically racked with oh, probably overthinking uh, things, which is probably the reason I write, you know, to be honest, is to sort of work through uh, things that are itching me scientifically. Yes, yes. But I do think, I do think, um, I think one of the reasons... Um, using the word love or one of the reasons I guess if I'm being completely honest and I'm interested in your opinion on this but I felt that by almost we've got to a point now there's so much science that by not calling it love in the cases where these are family dogs and you know it's clear that there's a strong bond by not calling it love it kind of gives some um dog owners or some people that give advice it gives them a license to sort of go well come on they're just like you know, it's like keeping any other animal, like chickens or whatever. You know, it's like keeping something, you know, an animal like that that's slightly less um, socially advanced as a dog. So I kind of feel like by not calling it what it is, maybe in Britain anyway, we're belittling that relationship to the cost of the dog. Does that make sense? Wow. Yes, it does make sense. And it's a shame because who mm. loves their dogs more than the Brits, honestly? I mean, walkies is, you know, the famous walkies lady was is decades dead by now. Yeah. The idea yeah. that you could have conversations with them, they understood your conversations. Or as you write about Oz, you unload the dishwasher and do a number of other things in the morning, and he knows that a walk or playtime will follow, and you're just completely in sync with each other. Now, maybe the chickens would be in sync, too. I mean, chickens have a deeper emotional life and a social life than anyone's ever given them credit for. Of course, mm. this goes across the whole animal spectrum, right? We're, we've always belittled anything that isn't two-footed, upright, and speaking with <laughs> you know, the human tongue. And we're learning that we should be a bit more humble. But what I really like about your last chapter is, and you don't use this phrase, and it's very American. So in the same way that L Word refers, at least in America, in kind of contemporary popular culture to this lesbian show, mm. um, which is funny, though, that, that the L word has that kind of, ooh, we shouldn't say it out loud within science, is the phrase heart dog. Now, have you heard that phrase? It's very commonly used in America, even oh, by writers. No, I don't know this phrase, so tell me more. Well, this is great because that's what your last chapter is about, about heart dogs. And you will hear breeders talk about it, trainers, owners, scientists. There's this one dog that happens in your life. And in your in your childhood, you had Biff and you have Oz. And one of them would most likely, I guess you could have two heart dogs in your life. But what it refers to is, uh, it, someone always says, I love all my dogs. I have loved all my dogs, but Maisie is my heart dog. And what that means is very specifically the thing you're talking about, Clive Wynn and Zephos, a dog mm-hmm. who reaches so deep into your center. We don't have to call it soul. So deep mm-hmm. into the center of you, whether it's eye contact, physical uh, attachment, doing things together, feeling like you know each other. That, and when people lose their heart dog, they never 
it, the heart dog doesn't get replaced. They could have more dogs and love them and have great relationships. But this one dog that kind of rings your bell in such a profound way. And that's a phrase that's used even casually. I've had a dog training show called Good Dogs, and the women were gold were um, agility, working dog, golden retriever breeders. They did it as their profession, and they kept a number of dogs themselves and sold many of them, but they each had a heart dog, and they would refer to it quite casually. And I'm sure that other scientists, you talk about other scientists in the book. It's really interesting. You you do the whole history very scientifically and talk about these various scientists, some of them who were quite heartless and cruel in their mm-hmm. treatment of dogs to discover the information they wanted. But I think heart dog is a great phrase. And I, I feel like you have more you might even want to write about this. You You understand it so well and you feel so deeply that that you want to stand up for this relationship that can happen or does happen. Do you think that is sort of like you're finally freed of the constraints of being a very serious scientific writer? Okay, I've got that out of the way. Okay, so I've written, you know, (laughs) 225 pages where I've proven this stuff to you and that other people have proven. Now let's talk about what this relationship is, the power of it, you know? Yeah, I do. I do. And I do do definitely feel freed. I feel... um... Uh, you know, there's one of the um, dogs, um, one of the wonder dogs in the in this in the story is um, called Flip, and Flip was a a, a wild dog. Um, uh, sorry, I should say a, a, a free roaming dog. Right. Um, that was uh, in the mountains of um, uh, of Hungary, and found by a research scientist and who who took this dog home. And this research scientist, ethologist, so behavioural scientist, was so enamored with this dog that he kept a diary and wrote a diary of every time the dog did something that was really unusual um, he would write it down and his um, observations basically he was so amazed at the the cognitive things that that, that flip was able to do that he convinced his um his colleagues to um sort of scrap the research they were doing on fish and focus on family dogs instead so i'm sure you've heard of the family dog project it's you know, so famous I've never understood where it began. This is so cool because you really are so steeped in the history. I always wondered why Hungary? They had the first dog cognition study group in almost in the modern times, right? Yeah. So I think my relationship at the moment with Oz is – uh, is a little bit like that. I just I'm I'm writing down lots of scraps of things that are just like oh that's so interesting. I never considered that before. And you know who knows? I mean I, I don't think I'll ever publish it, but I just think it's a really interesting way to to ask questions about animals. And that's the that's the kind of bottom that's the kind of bottom line for me is I just I love this idea that dogs this for for years you know zoologists were you know obsessed with the you know chimpanzees and gorillas and for good reason. But yes. you know actually. We've got this animal in our homes that can, you know, give us an opportunity to sort of view the animal kingdom um, in in a really easy to uh, to observe way. You know, and I really, really like that. But going back to what you said about heart dogs is, you know, hearing that description, um, I think I've had a 
part cat. I mean, is that Oh, possible? nice. It's not used about kitties, but why shouldn't it be? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. That one cat makes you think they are not other than us. They, We are them. They are us. That's great yeah. that you have that. Oh, I see Wonder Kitty, your next book. <laughs> Excellent. Well, see, cats, cats, the story of cats in science, I think they, they were used in puzzle boxes, weren't they, by uh, psychologists in the early, early 1900s, but they haven't got quite the same sort of strength there. But no, I definitely... I mean, I think about it all the time, actually, and that's a that's a what you said there is a great way of 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 me cataloging it, I suppose. But yeah, this relationship and that wasn't meant to be a pun, you know. (laughs) Just in wrapping up, I want to say that someone who's as good a writer as you are, and such a feeling writer as well as an intellectual one, to say that you're keeping a diary of this lurcher, which is a breed we don't have in America, and I'm familiar with it because I've had friends in England who have them. And you wouldn't publish it? Oh, come on, Jules. What, are you kidding me? I think you have to do, you know, the great dog and cat debate novel as seen through your eyes, which is heart dog, heart cat. What's the difference? How does it work? How do we interact with each other? How do they interact with each How do they interact with each other? We're all fascinated by it. And your observations would help us reflect more caringly in terms of taking the time to watch and think about it. It would instruct us to do more of that in our own lives with our dogs. We rush through our lives too much. And because you are at heart a scientist and an ethologist and you want to know more, you could you could lead the way. Have us stop for a minute, you know? Think about it. We wouldn't necessarily write about it, but your writing about it would, would deepen our relationships with our dogs and our cats. What's the kitty's name? Um, he's Unfortunately, he's, he's passed now, but his name is uh, was Junior. Oh, Junior. Well, maybe there'll be Junior the second, and you'll pay, yeah, and you'll, maybe. and you can pay that kind of attention. Even if he's not a heart cat, he'll be Jules Howard's cat to be paid attention to. Mm, yeah, I like that. Thank you. You've, you've You're got very right welcome. You well, we've run out of time, Jules, but the book Wonder Dog: The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans brings together all the great writing and thinking that's been done about dogs from time immemorial and now your thinking and your feeling, which is a wonderful cherry on top. So thank you for writing it and for opening yourself up to your feelings and to those of your dogs and helping us to do the same. Thanks ever so much, Tracy. All power to you. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support their products because they stand behind my mission, which is to educate and inspire while entertaining. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like No Hide and the Hybrid Dry Food Wisdom, which sometimes is all that my Blue Wimer on or Maisie will eat. My other sponsor is Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp, formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. And I'm grateful to Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It is higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.